0: Recording is from Parramatta Christian
1: Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. I'm reading from John 20, verse 1 to 10, to 24 to 29. So early on the first day of the week, He bent over and looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. not seen, and yet have believed.
0: Good morning, church. Christ is risen. All right. Christos and Estes for the Greeks in the house. Christ is risen. Firstly, I want to just thank all our volunteers, our creative team, our prop team, our hospitality team that have just done so much this weekend. You guys have done amazing. It's been such a wonderful, meaningful Easter. Lots of people have been giving us feedback and we can't take any credit for it because it's, everyone's just contributed in different ways. And want to say thank you for the team effort. It's so wonderful when the body of Christ comes together and people function in their gifts and their passion uh, and are able to serve the Lord and each other. Uh, and that's how it's meant to be. So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So thank you to everyone who's been a part of it. Well. This has got to be the greatest Sunday to preach on, Um, you know, as we remember and reflect on the greatest day in history, as one song says. And as the old chorus says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I know, I know he holds the future. What a wonderful song that is. And, And why is it that Christians can rejoice on this great day? Well, it's because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and that is our hope, and that is our confidence. And I want to, you know, focus on our theme this morning, which is alive. Jesus is alive. And the reason, as Christians, we can get so excited and so uh, hopeful and joyful on these days because, again, uh, of another incredibly profound promise that Jesus made. And if you've been journeying with us through these last couple of months, we've been exploring different promises that Jesus made. And, and this one is, is staggering in its claim. And it's found in John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. And it says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. And Jesus makes his promise again in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. And again in verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus in John 11 is even more explicit when he says that I am the resurrection and the life and that everyone who believes will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What an incredible promise. Let me pray and we'll spend a bit of time reflecting on this. Father, thank you for this great Day. Thank you that you rose Jesus from the dead. Thank you, Lord, that he's alive today and we can rejoice and, and celebrate that greatest day in history. And Lord, I pray that as we come around your word, that you'll help us to have ease to hear what your spirit is saying. Lord, that our hearts will be open to yield and surrender to your word, to bow before you in awe and reverence. And Lord, that you will grip our hearts afresh. This is not a new story, it's a familiar story, but will you grip our hearts afresh this morning with this incredible, history-changing, life-transforming truth that Jesus is alive. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to I say to you that the claim of having life eternal is not unique to Christianity. Uh, every other religion has some kind of idea of the next life or life after death or eternal life, whether it's Nirvana or whether it's paradise or, or sitting at the, at the uh, feet of Lord Shiva or whatever it might be, the, every religion has some concept of the afterlife. So the question is, well, how do we know if we've got it right? How do we know that we're on the right pathway? You know, I was talking to someone and they said to me, but surely, you know, like all roads lead to heaven. And I said, well, how do we know that, though? Uh, Has anybody come back to tell us that all roads lead to heaven? They get to the same end point? doesn't matter which pathway we take? I mean, surely, our eternal destiny is not something we want to leave to chance or or gamble on. Uh, Surely, on our deathbed, we don't want to be lying there thinking, have I bought the right ticket? Have I followed the right path? Is this what is going to make my eternity secure? I want to say to you that uh, as a Christian and as a pastor, I've conducted numerous Christian funerals and, and, and sat with people in their last moments and I can tell you that there is a faith and a hope and an assurance and a confidence that defies logic. How can this be? How can Christians be so sure? How can Christians be so confident? How can Christians have this hope that's unshakable, that on their deathbed, they are looking forward, they are longing, they're eagerly expecting something amazing. They're anticipating something incredible and wonderful, and that is to be reunited with Jesus. How can that be? Well, the simple answer that is so profound is because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive. And that is what makes it all different. But why? Why is the resurrection so important in the Christian faith? Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 spends a whole chapter talking about the resurrection. And he says this, that if our hope is just for this life, we're the most hopeless people of all. We're we're to be pitied more than anyone else. And he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is futile. The gospel is meaningless. We, We have no assurance that God has forgiven us, that we're reconciled with the Father. We have no assurance of anything. That's why he's saying, if we're living this life of serving Jesus and honoring Him and obeying Him and following in His ways, and it's just for this life, what a sorry bunch we are. But then he puts in this little word, three letters, but so profound, but... But Jesus rose from the dead, and that changes everything. And so this morning, I want to spend just a little bit of time doing two things. One is I want to give you just three reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is so significant. I mean, we celebrate it, we, we, you know, we worship and we adore Jesus because of it. But I want to just spend a little bit of time telling you maybe something you already know, but to remind you why this is so, so significant. And then I want to give us maybe two reasons why we can be sure that it actually happened. Because there's so many people who question the resurrection. Did it really happen? You know, is this all a bunch of bogus, you know, like you're just making it all up? I want to look at that so that we can leave here standing firm on this promise. That's been what we've been looking at all this ministry standing firm on the promises of God, on the promises of Jesus, knowing that it's, it's reasonable and it's, it makes sense for us to be confident that when Jesus says that he will do this, that he will raise us up, that we will be resurrected, there is life after death, that in him, if we believe in him, we will never die but have eternal life, that he can actually deliver on this promise. Why is this significant? Well, the first thing is that Jesus makes some radical claims in the Bible, right? We looked at one of them, and John, John, in John chapter five, Jesus, in, in association with resurrection, makes another claim, and, and he says this in. Um, In verse 24, for for truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Verse 25 is the claim that Jesus makes. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, speaking of himself, and those who hear him will live. Then verse 26, he makes another claim. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in in himself. Now, is that a true claim? In John 11, we looked at, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And we can say, well, prove it. You see, throughout the gospel of Mark, and in all of the gospels, Jesus predicted his death before it even happened. And in Mark chapter 831, chapter 931, chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus three times predicts his death. And every time he predicted his death, he also predicted his resurrection. Now, if Jesus didn't raise himself, if God didn't raise him, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all of those claims need to be dismissed. He, he's not the son of God. He, he doesn't have life in himself. He isn't the resurrection and the life. None of those things are true. We have no reason then to be confident that Jesus can raise us up because if he can't raise himself up, then how can we possibly think he can raise us up? So it is incredibly significant That Jesus raised himself, that Jesus rose from the dead because that gives us confidence that he is the son of God. He is the author of life. He is the triumphant one and can raise us up also. The second reason the resurrection is so profoundly significant is that it it gives us assurance. It demonstrates without a doubt that Jesus' mission was successful. It was accomplished. It, it was achieved, and we looked at a little bit on Friday. What we talk, when we talked about Jesus' mission was to live a perfect life and to lay his life down as a sacrifice for sin. And so, when he cried out, "It is finished," imagine this: the, the 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 scene of you know in a in a football match where there's a try and people aren't sure about the try, and you you know you see this spinning thing on the on the third you know, is the third referee screen or whatever it is you know pending. Uh, it spins around, and everyone's kind of waiting. Is it? Is it? And then you see the green try and the crowd goes, that's the resurrection. Up until then, it's pending. You know, Jesus came and he he lived the perfect life. He laid it down for our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. He cried out, it is finished. And everyone's waiting with bated breath. Is it? Is the Father satisfied? Has our debt been paid? Has Jesus really atoned for our sin? Pending, pending. Hebrews 2, the writer says that Jesus had to become like us. You see, because our sin is what gives the devil the power over death. That is where the, the devil's power comes from. Our sin, our rebellion, our rejection of God. Because the Bible says that if we sin, if we reject God, then the penalty for that is death. And the devil holds that over us but it goes on to say that Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God that he might what make atonement for the sins of the people that's what he came to do to pay the price to cover over our sin to take our judgment our death sentence our penalty on himself which is why the writer of Hebrews, he does this cool thing. He says, he talks about how Jesus did his priestly work, how Jesus was the sacrifice, of Jesus was the lamb. And then he does this thing where he says, and Jesus sat down. Hebrews chapter 10 is one example of it. It says this, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Here's another one of those big buts. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for him, here it is, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That phrase, he sat down, is so important because it means mission accomplished. Work complete. It's like God stamping over Jesus' work. Try. Try. And that's what the resurrection means. God the Father raising His Son to say, mission accomplished. I agree with you. It is finished. The debt paid. Humanity redeemed. Rescued. Set free from the devil's power over death. Come on, come on, how exciting that is. Third reason, it is what guarantees that Jesus will ultimately win and triumph over death and all of the effects of sin over the entire created world. In Romans 8, Paul says that all of creation is groaning and longing for the day of the adoption of God's people when Jesus returns to make everything right. And in these passages in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul unpacks over and over again the significance of Jesus' resurrection for our own bodily resurrection. And he says Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that death has been dealt a death blow. That Jesus has conquered, that Jesus has triumphed over this ultimate enemy, this final enemy, death itself, that terrifies and holds captive all of humanity. They said the number one fear that humans have is the fear of death. And Hebrews in chapter 2, it said that Jesus came to rescue us from that fear because he has defeated death. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits. In other words, he goes up in front of us. He's the first installment of what everyone else is going to experience, of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, look at this promise, so in Christ All will be made alive. Alive. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then later on in the chapter towards the end, Paul says even more in 1 Corinthians 15, 40, I think it is. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. That's what Hebrews teaches us. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is significant because it gives us confidence that we too will be raised again, that Jesus can keep the promise, that we are on the one and only pathway to eternal life, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father, no one can enter into paradise, enter into eternity with God other than through Jesus because it was Jesus' mission and work alone on the cross that satisfies the wrath of God that paves the way for us to enter into the kingdom of God. We are risen. We are risen, the Bible says, even now, and we will be raised eternally to be with Jesus. And so as this is so significant, so important, so central to the Christian faith, how can we be sure? How can we be sure? And so that brings us to our reading this morning. Two things that we're told from this reading that, I mean, there's many things that we can talk about that give us encouragement and hope and confidence to believe in the truth of the resurrection. But just two things I want to look at this morning. One is the empty tomb, which kind of seems pretty obvious to say, right? The empty tomb. But we need to really think about this. Because some people claim that, well, the disciples came and they stole the body, right? And maybe you've heard that in talking to people at your workplace or at uni or school, that the disciples are the ones that took the body. Well, when we read the Bible, it's not really that convincing to believe that they would. Verse 19 of chapter 20 says this, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Like, these guys were terrified. They, They had just... They'd lost their friend, their, their Lord, their Savior, their, 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 the one who thought was going to be their Messiah. They're hiding. Now, uh, do we really think that these bunch of fishermen and hodgepodge people are going to go when they're afraid of the Jewish leaders and take on a Roman guard who would trained professional soldiers? And I think in, in Luke's gospel, it said that they had two swords among them. And when we see Peter wielding a sword, the best he can do is chop off a guy's ear. I mean, really? Are we thinking that they're gonna take on a Roman guard and steal the body of Jesus? I mean, another thing that I would say, like, really? The disciples stealing the body of Jesus? I mean, we're told that, you know, let's just say, okay, they they did steal the body. Well, they, they went to a lot of trouble to enact surprise. You know, Mary comes and tells them, you know, the tomb's empty. He's not there, and they're running to go and see something when they already know oh, we know where the body is stashed. like really, you'd go to all that trouble to pretend, oh, surprise, he's not here. Have you ever thought about why the tomb was empty, like why the the, the stone was rolled away? Sometimes we think it's so that Jesus could get out. I've thought that, but you know John tells us that Jesus could walk through locked doors and rooms in you know, there. He was like teleporting in and out. It wasn't for Jesus to get out. It was for the disciples to go in and to see that he's not here. He is risen. And for them to believe that something cataclysmic had happened that day, that they were still trying to figure out and comprehend. The other thing that some people claim is that uh, Jesus' enemies stole the body. Like, really? I mean, you know, why would you do that? Especially when you knew that Jesus was going around telling people that he was going to rise from the dead. That would just prove his point, right? And then when all of the hype started to happen in Jerusalem, like on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 get saved, when Peter is just telling everyone that Jesus was risen, you'd think they'd bring the body out and go, "Ah, uh-uh, he's not, here he is. Like, why, why would they do that? And interestingly, it was the the enemies of Jesus that asked Pilate to put a Roman guard at the tomb because they were afraid that the disciples were going to steal the body. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any logic. So the only reasonable conclusion we can come to when you see an empty tomb, it's empty because there's nobody there. It's empty because Jesus was raised from the dead. It's empty because something supernatural has happened. And the other little tidbit that John gives us here is in verse 7, where he talks about these linen strips. Like, what's going on with the linen strips? As well, you know, in verse 6, then Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there. Like, okay. Okay. Verse 7, as well as the cloth that had been this, put on his face, wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Why all this stuff about linen? Well, if you're going to steal a body, would you go to the trouble of unwrapping it and neatly arranging all the linen that was there and then taking the body? Like, really? I think that's there kind of going, now, whatever happened to the body, happened miraculously. And some people believe that because the strips were lying as they were, it suggests that Jesus' body just rose through them and that the strips just remained as though the body just disappeared. The empty tomb. The second reason is the appearances, all the appearances. And again, people say all kinds of things. They go, oh, maybe the disciples were having kind of a spiritual moment you know, they were hallucinating. I, I don't know of too many times when there's been a, a multitude of people having the same hallucination. They must have all been smoking the same thing. I don't know, but people say all kinds of stuff, or that it was some sort of spiritual experience that they were having, like seeing a ghost, maybe. You know, like it was just this weird trance-like thing. In, in I think it's in Matthew's, no, Luke's account. I think Jesus was aware of this, and he actually says something quite profound. And he says this, they were startled. This is the disciples. They were freaking out, thinking they saw a ghost. So Luke is already kind of going, yeah, the disciples thought they'd seen a ghost. Like, and we know like when Jesus was walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. Like, so we've had this experience before. And so Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then Jesus asked them for a bit of fish and he eats it to prove to them, hey guys, come on, really? You think I'm a ghost? Well, let me prove it to you that I'm not. I'm here physically, bodily raised from the dead. Jesus appeared to people in, in several different instances. They weren't just all in the one place having the same trip. It was just all people at different times in different place, places having this appearance of Jesus, an encounter with Jesus. And it wasn't just a visual occurrence. Uh, appearance. Jesus says, touch my hands. Stick your fingers in my, the hand, the piercings in my hand. Put your fist in my side. Touch me. Feel me. It's my body that's risen from the dead. And that is why we can believe that our bodies too will be raised because it is a physical resurrection that Jesus has in mind. And the renewal of all things is the physical world that God created in Genesis chapter 1 that he said was really, really good being renewed and restored into its ultimate glory, free from sin and the power of death. And now people say about the appearances, you know, maybe the disciples... They were just wanting to create this new religion called Christianity and a risen Savior. Well, that, that'll gain some good traction and mileage, and they just invented the story of Jesus' resurrection. Well, again, let me put that claim to death by saying, well, if they were going to do that, they wouldn't have written about Mary being the first one to see Jesus. Just, just, in, in, in this time and period, particularly in, in Jewish circles, the testimony of a woman counted for nothing. So if you're going to set up a new religion that you wanted to gain traction and take off in this time, in this period, you wouldn't write down that a woman was the first one to see the risen Jesus. You just wouldn't do it. You're just shooting this thing in the foot. You're killing it in the water before it gained any traction at all. And you certainly wouldn't write down that the the pioneers, the leaders, the main proponents of this claim that Jesus had risen were the ones who were doubting the most. You you just wouldn't do it. You'd write it that, yes, we're just so confident. They're they're just so messed up. They're afraid. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. They don't believe. You just wouldn't write it like that. The only reasonable conclusion is that they really, really had no idea that Jesus was going to be raised the way he was. And when they saw him, they touched him. And they had a personal encounter with the risen Christ. That is what convinced them of the truth claim that Jesus made. That he is the resurrection and the life. And that all who believe in him, like him, will be raised from the dead again. You see, plenty of people are willing to be put to death for something that they're genuinely convinced is true. Ask any martyr, any radical, any extremist, and they'll tell you, yeah, I'll give my life down because of what they genuinely believe is true. But I don't know of too many people who are willing to lay down their life for what they genuinely know is not true. All of these disciples were martyred, confidently proclaiming that Jesus was alive. If they'd stolen the body, if they'd made it up, It just doesn't make sense that they were willing to die for something they know wasn't true. So, Christian, this morning, I want to encourage you that believing in the resurrection of Jesus, as mind blowing as it seems, as out there as it seems, is on a strong foundation of God's Word. It makes sense. You can be confident that Jesus meant it when He said that He was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus meant it when He said, I am the Son of God. Jesus meant it when He said, you know, you can kill me, but in three days' time, I will be raised to life again. You can be sure that Jesus meant it when He said that if you believe in Him, you too will have resurrection and eternal life now. Now. So the question is, do you believe? What do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus? You see, the Bible says in Romans 10 that believing in the resurrection is a vital, indispensable, key ingredient of coming to faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. And it's not just believing in your head because I've convinced you this morning. It's receiving the revelation of God's spirit in your heart that gives you faith to surrender to Jesus. It says, Jesus, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life and that God raised you from the dead. Do you believe this morning? And if you're here, you're visiting, you're watching online, you're outside, and you're yet to believe, don't leave here on this Resurrection Sunday without making that commitment to follow Christ. And maybe you came in here this morning doubting and a skeptic, not really sure somebody invited you maybe to church, or you kind of went, no, it's the traditional thing to do, go to church on Easter." End. There, here I am. But maybe God's been at work in your heart through the songs, through the prayer time, through this message and you find yourself th- that faith is growing in your heart that Jesus did rise from the dead and if, if you're at that point and you're ready to make that decision and commitment to follow Christ, I would love to this morning pray with you and at the conclusion of our service, I invite you to come to the front. I'll be here because I'm playing. I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere and I'd love to talk with you and pray with you and and and. and Share this wonderful experience of you receiving Jesus into your heart as your Savior and Lord. And if you're not ready to do that, that's okay. We're not about pressuring you to do anything. On your way out, the ushers will have a bag for you to take. There's got information and literature in there that you can grab a hold of and read through. And and we'd love to make contact with you and answer any questions you have. Because this is the greatest thing that you will ever do. Surrendering your life. To Jesus. And if you're online, get on our website, reach out to us, make contact with us. We would love to have this conversation with you in person. This morning, my question for you as followers of Jesus is, how has the resurrection of Jesus impacted your life? How has it changed things for you? You see, because for the disciples, it changed everything. They went from a scared, confused bunch of guys hiding behind closed doors locked up, afraid, to boldly proclaiming and declaring the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter three, Peter's just preached, uh, heal this guy in the name of Jesus and people are wondering what's going on and and Peter says this, this is what he declares um, in Acts chapter four, I think, or three or four. When Peter saw this, this is all the people running around, gathering around him, going, what's going on? He said to them, Fellow Israelites, why why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And listen to how Peter just goes for the jugular. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. This is bold. He's just going out there saying, we're witnesses. This is true. You can kill us, You can throw us in jail, which happens in Acts chapter 4. They beat them up and they tell them, they forbid them to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter's like, sorry, can't do. Radically transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. Is your life? Is my life? What would it look like if we really grabbed a hold of this revelation going, Jesus You've been raised from the dead. You're seated at the right hand of the Father, above every principality and power. I have nothing to fear because you are interceding for me. I have nothing to worry about because you reign above it all. Jesus, you are my advocate. There's no sin that can separate me from the Father because you are praying for me. And there is healing and cleansing in your blood. There is the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that is living in me. And there's nowhere I can go that you will not be because you are alive and you will always be with me. And I can stand on that promise that you will never leave me or forsake me because you are alive. And because you're alive, I know that you're going to come again. And that nothing humans can do to me will ever separate me from not only your love, but your power to raise me from the dead. The greatest enemy has been defeated. Death is defeated. You have triumphed. You are victorious. And because of that, there is nothing more for me to fear. And I will live sold out for you, boldly proclaiming and declaring the lordship of Jesus in my life through my actions and my words. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Father, what a great day this is. I pray, Father, right now as we bow before you that your spirit will be at work in people's hearts. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take these words of mine and bring them alive. As your word says that you will give people the gift of faith right now to believe, to add their faith to the the power of your word and that it would come alive in their hearts. Oh God, may this Resurrection Sunday bring transformation into our lives. And I pray, Lord, for everyone who is yet to come to that surrender to trust, to believe. Will you be speaking to them? Will you be working in their hearts? Will you confirm your word through the Holy Spirit, witnessing to them that they too might come to believe? Just like Thomas, who began as a doubter, a skeptic, and then when he had an encounter with Jesus, he bowed before you and said, my Lord and my God. May that be their confession this morning Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit come thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Jesus Holy Spirit Thank you, Lord. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want to just give an opportunity for people to respond. At the end of the service, it's going to be a bit chaotic, people moving about. But right now, if you feel that God has been speaking to you through this service, maybe you've never asked Jesus to come in to your heart and be your Savior and Lord. Maybe you've never surrendered your, your life to following Christ, to making Him your Lord and serving Him. And this morning you you feel challenged, you feel convicted, you feel like God's just speaking to you right now. I want you to do a very simple yet profound thing and just to slip up your hand right where you are. And I'd love to pray with you, but just so I can get a sense of what God is doing in your heart. Or maybe you used to follow Christ. And maybe you're at church, like I said, because you've never not gone to church on Easter, but you know you're far from God. You haven't been walking closely with Jesus and maybe this morning you're wanting the resurrection to grip your heart afresh and you want to come back to the Lord and God's challenging you and speaking to you if that's where you're at then you can slip up your hand too thank you Jesus thank you Lord worship you thank you Lord well that's encouraging and the rest of us are in that category of going, okay, Jesus, will you change us? Will you grip our hearts afresh with the power of your Holy Spirit, the risen power of Jesus? Lord, that we might live radical, sold-out lives for Jesus. Lord, that we would be the ones that bring transformation into our communities and workplaces and schools and universities because Christ in us is the hope of glory. Oh, God, I pray that, Lord, you will use us to bear much fruit that will bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus and that we would see your kingdom advanced in Parramatta, in the nations, in our community, as your Holy Spirit does your work through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship?